Cody, you've never been long-winded, have you? No, no. Never been accused of it either. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, that's a VP of marketing and sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I'm a storyteller, man. I love it. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Sherry, port, honey, sauternes, French oak, takai, toasted, and so much more. The world of cask finishing has exploded. It's what many consider to be the current wave of innovation for today's bourbon market. I mean, is there a bourbon brand that hasn't done a secondary cask finishing yet? I don't think so. However, this world is still a little bit like the Wild West. Companies are dumping bourbon into casks. There's stave additions. There are other oak alternatives. But how do you know if your port finished bourbon is actually finished with port instead of just having port dumped back into the barrel and blended into it? Unless there is some level of transparency, it's really hard to know. That's why Lee Tatum and Cody Ewers of Interstave are joining the show. They give a brief history of how Interstave had traditionally been used in wine for ages, and now there is a desire for their products to be used with bourbon. We discuss what makes their oak finishing products different and how they can replicate a process time and time again versus pressing your luck on a barrel that came over from another country on some random container ship. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Jeremy Babinow, who writes me on Twitter, at Fred Minnick, wanting to know what are the differences between weeded bourbons and rye bourbons in terms of how they are aged. Well, great question, Jeremy. And by the way, you can find uh, uh, Jeremy on Twitter, at Jeremy Babs. So that's at Jeremy Babs. And the answer to that question, Jeremy, is you are really looking at the exact same aging in terms of the warehouse. They go into the same barrels, they're put into the same warehouses. There might be a rick different here or a row different there or a part of the warehouse different. But for the most part, they are all going into the same kind of warehouses to be aged. The key difference here is the barrel entry proof. Some time ago, weeded bourbons just kind of got into this category of lower barrel entry proofs. Some distiller decided that they need to always be going into the barrel at 110 to like 114 barrel entry proof. When I have pressed people like Harlan Wheatley, like, where did this come from? Why did it start like this? No one really knows. It's just kind of, that's the way it was. And, and in whiskey, they have this tendency to like not really change anything if it works. And barrel entry proof for weeded bourbons is really really kind of the key difference between how they are made. The one big difference there is the Heaven Hill weeded bourbons. They're going into the barrel at 125. They basically go into their barrels at 125 proof. And Makers is going in at 110. Weller, Van Winkle going in at 114. And what that extra water does in the barrel for the whiskey is it actually decreases the bitterness in it. And basically you have these phenols in the compound that can create too many tannins. And the higher you go up in proof in the barrel, the more of those bitter notes, the tannic notes that you will pick out, pull out of the barrel. That's the going theory anyway. 
and everybody's different. Everybody believes in what they're doing is the best way to do it. And so there's no wrong way here to make this style of whiskey. I'm just telling you, Jeremy, the tradition is the only thing that really separates it from the creation of it is the barrel entry proof. People may do the cooks differently. Like I know they can't cook weeded bourbons at the same temperature as as rye. And so there's some little things here and there. But the big one for me has always been the barrel entry proof. But great question. If you want to be like Jeremy, hit me up on Twitter or fredminnick.com and ask me a question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today, but we're talking to some people that have recently become very well known to myself and Ryan because we're starting to do some little experimentation with them. And I remember the first time Ryan brought these little pieces of wood over to me and he said, hey, you've got to try this two-year-old bourbon. I swear it probably tastes like a six-year-old now. And I think the cogs in the head just started going and said, what are the possibilities we could do with this? Yeah, this whole leading up today is kind of random. As people know, we partner with Barstone Bourbon Company. So I'm down there all the time, eating lunch, working down there, meeting people. One day I'm just sitting at the bar, you know, having lunch. And Susie's like, come have lunch with us. We got a presentation we need to hear. And I want you to hear it. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine, Susie. Just let me sit here. And then so I did end up going over there and Mr. Tatum, Lee Tatum was there presenting his newest product and to be fair, I was very, or to be honest, I was very skeptical of it. He handed me these bags of like wooden cubes and I'm like, what the hell is this thing? And very skeptical. Anytime you have a new technology or, a, you know, something innovative in the bourbon space, you're kind of like red flags go off. But he was kind enough to give us some samples and yeah, I had some 
Justin Willett was there and he was like, yeah, I was like, Hey man, can you give us some of our, you know, some of our two year, three year, four year barrels? I'd love to try these things. And he gave me some samples, pop these things in there and my God, I was blown away. And, and so it sent me down as Kenny knows, I get very excited about new, exciting opportunities and the product really delivered in this case. And so just been really deep diving and kind of playing with more different of these products and really excited to show these guys off and what they're doing in the bourbon space. Cause I think it's really exciting new technology that a lot of people can benefit from. Yeah. We'll talk about that because as we were kind of talking about before here, they got their start in the wine industry and now they're sort of moving into this realm. So I think that's a good way to start introducing our guest today. So today on the show, we have Lee Tatum. He is the managing director of Interstave. And then we have Cody Ewers, and he is the VP of Global Sales and Marketing. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. We're excited to be here too. Good, good. We're going to throw all kinds of fun questions your way. So before we start talking about the product or anything like that, Lee, kind of give folks a little bit of a, a background about where you come from, because I think you have a little bit of a feather in your cap for one of like the greatest bourbon products that has ever been created about a decade ago. So kind of talk about that. Sure. Well, I've basically been in wine and spirits my entire career. I started out as a distributor rep and then went on to an ad agency where Brown Foreman was one of my clients. And then it turned out I ended up going over to Brown Foreman and their wine company back in 1996. And I spent 23 years with those guys we don't need to go into every single job I've had because there were a bunch while I was there. But some of the interesting ones, I did new product development for the wine company. And in the early 2000s, we came out with Little Black Dress Wines, which was a Impact Magazine, one of their fastest growing wine brands. And during that time, I met a guy named Steve Dorfman, and he was out running our production in California for Fetzer and Sonoma Couture. And... Moved on to other things at Brown Foreman. I was the chief of staff for the CEO, working on corporate branding, family shareholder relations, corporate strategy, just getting my hands on basically everything that goes on at a, a company like Brown Foreman, which was great. And then sort of the last five years I was there, I was our director of innovation. And so we developed and introduced Slain Irish Whiskey and Cooper's Craft. And King of Kentucky, which has gone on to be quite a famous, you know, little craft brand. I was about to say, it's one of my favorite releases every year. Yeah, it's great. Cooper's Craft, ironically, was built to pay homage to the Coopers. And now I'm in a role where I'm kind of saying, you don't need those guys as much as you used to. <laughs> I left Brown Foreman and went to Kentucky Owl, where I got to work with all of our good friend, Dixon Deadman. So, Shout out to Dixon. And then we had a great time on that brand. And then randomly, I was having dinner at Jack Fry's one night, and I run into Cody, Steve, and Gary, our marketing director. And Steve just said, Hey, come out to California, take a look at what we're doing. And I did. And I was, you know, I was impressed. And I really saw the spirit industry was maybe ready to look at some of this stuff. As Ryan said, Anything that's new, especially to bourbon, people kind of freak out a little bit. But some of these products are really interesting and I think are going to find a lot of good uses to solve problems for people as they're trying to get their flavor profiles together. Yeah, well, we definitely need to dive into 
little bit of the technology and, and what it is here in a little bit. But Cody, I kind of want to give people a background about where you came from as well and sort of what got you into the spirit space, because we were talking before here and said, you're an old journalism person. So you saw the saw the writing on the wall, newspapers and said, we got to We got to figure something else out real quick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. My father was a pilot and was based out of Detroit Metro when uh, Northwest was bought by Delta. So we ended up moving up to Michigan and being traitors to all of our Ohio Klansmen. I was about to say, that's fighting words in a yeah, lot of that yeah, part yeah, of the country. Yeah, tell me about it. I heard a lot of guff over the years for that one. But, you know, Michigan's a beautiful state, so we, we enjoyed ourselves. But, yeah, so when I went to Hillsdale College, I was a member of the Dow Journalism Program and loved history and, and journalism and, and writing and telling stories. And, of course, you know, the most interesting part for me was interviewing and, like, what you guys are doing and learning more about what's out there in the world and and telling those stories to people who might not have access to to that information. And, you know, a big piece of that and how I'm using that kind of interest now is looking at situations and problems and pain points for customers in the sales world and trying to adapt technologies and ways of thinking and doing things from other industries to other industries. So that kind of cross industry exchange of information is a really fun part about this job. And of course, we'll get into that, all that later from a technical standpoint. But so I went to college in Michigan, journalism major, did a little freelancing and ghostwriting, a little bit on the Detroit News side for some Traverse City Record Eagle all around the Ohio and Michigan area. Moved back to Cincinnati when I was in college and was just kind of bartending and trying to trying to write as much as possible. But I learned very quickly, as you mentioned, that the world of journalism was drying up in a major way and, and the romance was being sucked out of it. And it was being controlled by, by publishers and, and ownership boards that just had very little contact with the editorial staff at the front line. So... I was looking at alternative forms of employment. And of course, I'm a history double major with a German minor in journalism. So unless I wanted to be a teacher, there wasn't a whole lot smacking me in the face job-wise. So of course, bartending and working in Northern Michigan, there's a little bit of a wine culture up there. I studied in Germany and was a very poor German student. So I remember this wine tasting we had in Germany. Everyone was chatting with each other and I didn't speak very German. So I just sat there with the wines and tasted. And it was my first real experience with wine outside of, you know, stealing sips from my mom and my dad and my uncles. And there it was a really fun experience because I didn't have someone telling me what to taste or smell. When you go to a wine tasting or sometimes a bourbon tasting, before you even pick the glass up, someone's telling you, you're going to get vanilla, you're going to get coconut, you're going to get blah, 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 blah. Well, once you start saying that, your brain is going to start looking for those things and you're not going to have a true, honest first impression, in my opinion. So that was a really fun way for me to kind of take all preconceived notions aside and just look at the Riesling for the Riesling, you know. And I think I've taken that approach throughout my career, especially in the wine and spirits industries, to look at things in a different way. And that kind of brought me to Napa, a roommate in college, was born and raised in St. Helena. And we always talked about doing a wine together or some business idea and talk about the historical themes that we really enjoyed talking about in college. So we started a wine label, Preamble Wine Company, and you know, we do a historical theme with every wine, you know, and indivisible and every label is like a different little story that that I get to tell, which is fun. And then of course to pay the bills, because everyone knows it takes a very large sum of money to make a very small sum of money in the wine industry, <laughs> I had to get a day job. And of course I started cellar ratting around in other people's wineries, learning how to make wine and different tricks and, and trade and, and this and that. And that was really fun. But making twelve dollars an hour as a seller intern with no health insurance and being a thousand miles away from anyone I knew really outside of Alex, my business partner, 
wasn't very viable. So I went to the, the dark side, as it were, and started being a, a grimy sales guy. And my first tour of duty was selling irrigation and viticulture supplies to vineyard management companies in Napa, Sonoma Valleys, and then eventually Sacramento. And as I got further away from Napa and Sonoma, kind of chasing the money, as it were, selling micro sprinkler heads to walnut farmers and things like that, I realized I need to get back in the cellar. I need to get, this, I didn't move out here to, to work with strawberry farmers as much as I love those people. So I took a job with Sigue Moreau, actually a French cooperage based in Cognac, France. They also have a Napa cooperage here and a cooperage in Burgundy as well. I believe Bone. And that was a wonderful experience. Got me right back in the cellar, working with wine winemakers from a technical standpoint, you know, tasting through their their lots. And Sigamaro purchased a fine northern oak, which was an American oak alternatives company. So when you look at the pantheon of the barrel companies that own alternative companies, you have the French barrels at the top, then you have the French alternatives, and then you have the American barrels, and then you have the American barrel alternatives. So I was definitely a junior salesman at the bottom rung. But seeing a company well-respected like Sugimaro with amazing R&D department, I mean, they're owned by a larger company that, you know, just has lots and lots of resources. So that was really, really cool. And those folks are great. They treated me wonderfully. I've got nothing to, nothing but great things to say about Sugimaro. But that really cut my teeth in the oak business. And that was my first tour of duty there. And then I went to work for a steel manufacturing company in Stockton, California, selling barrel racks and steel infrastructure for, for wineries, breweries, and distilleries. And that kind of got me acquainted with the distillery and brewery world again, which was really fun. And then I've met Steve Dorfman, thanks to the the prodding of a, a, another mentor of mine, Raymond Wilmers. And we just became fast friends and saw the world in the same way. And this was a really cool opportunity to really look at an industry that is in need of change. You know, the barrel is a romantic but ancient piece of technology. And if we can be intentionally about how to impact beverages of all shapes and sizes, from bourbon to American whiskey to wine to ready-to-drink cocktails and so on and so forth, that was really exciting to me. So that's a lot, but that's kind of my journey here. It sets the scene in the background of what we're, what we're getting into. That's why you're the global VP of marketing and <laughs> tell those stories like that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot to drill into. It's, I think mostly it's just about choosing which ones to talk about. So hopefully we got a good one here today. So you said that you thought that this space needed to change. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So I have a, a small wine brand and of course my experience started in the wine business and, you know, in Napa specifically in Sonoma, there's not a lot of space. So barrel warehouses are tough. They're tough to manage. I remember being a seller intern and crawling up eight high stack of barrels in thousands of barrel barrel warehouses. And, you know, I've got a wand that's hooked up to a keg of Chardonnay or another barrel of Chardonnay, and I've got to top all these barrels and make sure they're sulfured. And so from the front lines, I had a lot of experience with barrel management. Obviously, that isn't as big of an issue in the spirits world, but it's a very, very cumbersome thing in the wine world. So from a space standpoint, from a labor standpoint, from a transportation standpoint, obviously working for a cooperage, you know, watching those barrels that are made in France travel over here uh, versus the barrel wood on pallets or something like that. You know, I started to understand just kind of how much it takes to move these barrels around the world and work with them. And so, you know, as a young winemaker myself, there's grapes as usually your number one cost. And then there's barrels and or a facility if you have one. For me, I don't have one. I do what's called custom crush. You guys are fairly familiar with with that kind of term or way of, of crafting beverages, I'm sure. And so renting space in someone else's winery. And of course, there's a barrel 
a cost per barrel per month. And any time that I could eliminate a cost like that is a major thing for for a young business owner. So that was my first, the, the economic pressure, I'll, I'll say, was my first kind of, okay, something needs to happen here. And there's these things called alternatives. And what is that? And how can I use those to my advantage, but still being true to the craft of, of making good wine the right way, as, as some people like to say. And so then I went down this, this rabbit hole of how to use oak and how oak interacts. Well, what's the role of oxygen? What's the role of the different type of varietal? And then eventually beer and spirits. And then it seemed very complicated in the beginning when you're eliminating the barrel or talking about eliminating the barrel and repurposing the oak in a different format. But once you kind of get a few key principles down, it does become rather simple. It's a basic chain of reactions that occurs that helps beverages mature. And based on how much oxygen you introduce, at what rate, how much oak you introduce, what types of woods, how long you let it season and let the wood tannin break down, what you toast at, whether it's fire, convection, or a blend of the two, if it's a chip format or a stave or a cube, I mean, the level of customization is daunting at first, but then it becomes very exciting and very fun when you kind of get over that first education hump. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to start diving into this is kind of talking about your all's technology and what you've created here. I think that was, you had mentioned at the very end right there. And this is kind of the joke that I had with Ryan when he first showed me these things. I said, what are these like bourbon bullion cubes? I was like, how are we supposed to make our whiskey change with this? And so kind of talk a little bit about, try to explain to our listeners really like what they look like and what it's doing and everything like that too. Yeah. So, so there's kind of like, Hey Cody, why don't you give them a little history of Interstave 2 to kick that Oh off? yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good idea, Lee. I kind of jumped over that. Thank you. So basically Interstave started in 1979 with a guy named Bob Rogers and basically American winemakers didn't want or couldn't oftentimes afford French wine barrels. So what they would do is they would do very creative things to their current stock of French barrel inventory. And uh, Bob Rogers started shaving the inside of barrels to expose new areas of the barrel wood that hasn't been penetrated and soaked by the wine. Of course, you know, increasing the overall extractable molecule count and allowing the wine to penetrate deeper and deeper into the barrel. So that was kind of the original way. Obviously, you can only shave a barrel so many times. So there was kind of a, an inherent shelf life on that process. Also, you're going in deeper and deeper into a barrel that's been toasted from the outside typically. So you're getting more raw wood characteristics and, and you know, just a different menu of extractable oak molecules, whether it's vanillins or methylglycols and things like that. We can, we could talk all day about that, but people love, people love the science geekiness. It's so feel really free fun to, stuff. Feel free yeah. to drop a few uh, long words in there that would kill somebody in a scrap <laughs> of you know, you know, it's just a, it's a new range. So if you're trying to make a consistent wine product, you know, shaving your barrels, is not a good idea. Let's put it that way. You know, you want a, a, a newer barrel that's toasted in the same way from the same species of oak and all that. So basically Bob Rogers recognized that quickly and started going through the bung popping the barrel head off and putting brand new staves in and just really reimagining the way that we saw the barrel use and oak impact. So that grew, it started kind of in the shadows. Winemakers were very cagey about talking about their use of these products. They still are these days a little bit, but basically Interstave helped blaze the trail for oak cooperage companies to then use more of their barrel waste as they created these very specific dimensions for barrels and then, you know, 
develop a host of alter- barrel alternative products. And then of course, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years later now, Interstave's always been a leader of that kind of reimagining the oak. And, you know, we went from barrel inserts, bungs through the head to tank inserts, infusion bags, cubes, blocks, two inch by two inch by whatever millimeter or, or inch you want. Five sixteenths is a typical width and thickness for us. And then, of course, you know, long format staves from 118 inches down to 39 inches, which is typically our, our kind of fan pack usual. Uh, that's one of our biggest selling products. And so basically the point is, is that we want to be able to allow you to use whatever vessel you want and introduce oak and oxygen at precise dosage rates so that you can get an achievable sensory outcome. So whether it's a concrete egg or an old Fudra from the beer industry that doesn't really impact any flavor anymore, or a stainless steel tank, or even a barrel, we want to have a product that works for you. So so that's kind of our oak. You know, we source all of our French and American oak from the central Missouri and central France. We have a team in France that obviously goes out and auctions a portion of the forest off for our demand. So it's really, really great for, for many, many years. Our company's been able to work with the same team that has these rigorous standards of sourcing protocol so that they can say, okay, we're going to get X amount of trees for you and then basically mill them to then send them to our yard in Carneros. That's where we season all of our oak. So, you know, seasoning is a very important process. It's where wood tannin can can start to break down and you start to not get so much astringency and really nice texture building attributes from it. So that's why a lot of people like to, in the wine industry especially, minimum 24 months aging. Whereas, you know, some bourbon barrels, they'll go six, sometimes 12 months, sometimes more. ISC is doing some interesting things, but we really like to, to mess around with that seasoning because that's a really big part that's often forgotten about from the casual whiskey drinker, wine drinker. We have some of our inventory that we're, we're messing around with that's, you know, five, six years aged. We're really excited about that. You know, the wood tan breaks down. Obviously, you lose some of those extractable molecules that are, that are at the surface of the wood. But with that kind of negative, that perceived negative, you also get a lot of really great texture building attributes. So we've found a lot of cool success with kind of our longer seasoned wood to be more texture building and less kind of oak impact, you know, the, those vanillins, those caramels, those vanillins and furfurals that kind of dominate those those typical oak profiles. This is a little bit more subtle, which is really fun. So anyway, we could have a whole segment on on seasoning protocols, but that just kind of gives you a, a glimpse and a window into the the cool stuff that we're able to do because we control the product from sourcing to seasoning, and then it moves to our next step, which is toasting. And we are convection toast house by trade. That's that's our historically our bread and butter. Convection toasting versus fire toasting is an interesting conversation. Fire toasting, obviously, you get a lot more of that smokiness and those uh, those rich, complex flavors. But you also you have a lot of variability. It's not as uniform. Whereas with convection toasting, you're toasting at very specific temperatures for very specific amounts of times, and you can get a very replicable product. And that's one of the biggest things that our customers have come to appreciate about us over the course of 20, 30 years of doing business with us. Some of our customers, you know, they have gotten a consistent product from beginning to end. And that's very important for us as well. We do fire toasting now as well. Uh, so that's something that we're really excited to adapt to the to the whiskey world specifically. You know, from the char level, obviously, you have to have a, a solution for that. And combining that with the different convection and fire toasting abilities that we have is really fun. So, so that's kind of the toasting piece of the equation. And then, of course, we mill and package from there based on consumer demand and what format makes the most sense for their products. So you're like a cooperage without making the barrel, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Okay. Exactly. We just we're not limited by form. 
barrel producers have to have these specific dimensions. A lot of stats get thrown around, but generally it's between one and five barrels that uh, a cooperage can get out of each oak tree. You know, 130-year-old resource. It's a, it's a precious thing. And barrels are beautiful. You know, they're romantic. They're not going anywhere anytime soon, especially in the, in the world of bourbon where they're highly regulated, right? So we love the barrels, but we also love to replace the barrels because for the majority of beverages that are consumed, it doesn't make economic and practical sense to continue filling barrels from both a sustainability standpoint and an economic standpoint and just kind of a workflow standpoint. So as I mentioned, you know, we've been the dirty little secret in the wine industry for 40 plus years. And now that sustainability is becoming a a very hotly debated topic and, and it's, you know, top of mind for a lot of consumers my age, certainly we're kind of coming out of the shadows and we're being given the respect, so to speak, that I, I feel that the, the industries do. And it's not so much a bad word. It's just, hey, listen, cork and screw tap had the same kind of argument. Everyone looked at screw cap as less than and just kind of not a quality bottle of wine just because it had a screw cap. Now you have Plump Jack coming out with 100 point wines in a screw cap. Cabernets from Oakville, you know, so every kind of industry disruption goes through that first repelling period where people are saying, no, that's not right. That's not the true way. And the way that we really talk about that from our products, because we get that a lot, is by saying, listen, we're not introducing anything artificial. That We're not introducing anything that wouldn't happen naturally in the course of an 18, 24 month or a two to four, six year aging period. We're just increasing the rate at which we introduce oxygen, which kind of like short filling barrels, right? It's the same kind of concept. You want more oxygen in there to, to you know, increase the rate at which those reactions happen. We're doing micro oxygen dosages at specific rates through semi-permeable membranes so that it's very, very microscopic doses of oxygen. It's very light. Obviously, that's less of an importance on whiskey because it's a hardier, higher proof substance. Whereas with wine, it's very, very sensitive. So if you're just blowing oxygen, you know, through the bottom of a tank, which some people do, that can change the profile of the wine in great ways. So oxygen introduction, oak introduction, we can vary our species. You know, you can do a percentage of American, percentage of French, you could do different toast levels to achieve different outcomes. So basically what we want to be able to offer our consumers is the ability to take one juice stream and turn it into 15 different brands. That is a very, very attractive thing for a lot of companies these days, especially considering the whiskey shortages that we're experiencing. And you could do more than just saying, it's X brand with toasted now. You can really go go beyond that. And I just want to make sure that everybody kind of level sets here is that this isn't new in the industry. I mean, Makers 46 has been doing this uh, kind of what considered maybe pioneered it a long time ago, Woodford Double Oak, like all these other kind of things are introducing wood as a second time as into the whiskey. You're just putting it in a different form. I want to go back to my original question too, was kind of give people an explanation of like, explain it to them so they can kind of picture it in their head. Like what do these cubes actually look like? Well, and I think too, it'd be helpful. So maybe explain how a winery or a spirit company would go about using your product in a real life example. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. 
And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Explain it to them so they can kind of picture it in their head. Like, what do these cubes actually look like? Well, and I think, too, it'd be helpful to maybe explain how a winery or a spirit company would go about using your product in a real-life example. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, to answer that question specifically, because I, I kind of took the long way around it last time. Sorry about that. We, we, we can see the journalists. Yeah, yeah, right. Me. My journalism professor would be disappointed with, uh, with my nut graph use. But anyway, so basically, we make these in all sorts of different formats. Specifically for the spirits world, you know, we've had most success with cubes, uh, half inch by half inch by half inch cubes. They're able to be put into a sleeve and inserted through the bung of a barrel. So it can take a two-year barrel or a four-year barrel and really elevate that complexity and add some layers in there that really makes that taste like it's been aging for a lot longer. It's a really good way for a lot of small distilleries that we work with, typically because they're a little bit more innovative and open to trying out new things and allow them to you know win some double golds and really stand out in competition. So we also have oak chains, which are 5 16th width by two inches by about 16 to 18 inches. And those go in through the bung as well. We also have barrel inserts where we have a cooperage team that comes out on site pops open the top of the heads of the barrels and then inserts 39 inch by two inch by five sixteenth inch staves in a radial design that hugs the side of the barrel. So you can still sample, you can still have free in and out use uh, topping or anything that you need to do through the bung while still introducing that wood in through the barrel. So those are kind of the real world practical answers, especially as it pertains to the whiskey business. Also, we have infusion bags that would be hung in anywhere from 3,000 to 100,000 gallon tanks. So, you know, we have wine customers out here, you know, the larger, the larger folks, and they will hang 500 fan packs in a, you know, 120,000 gallon tank and then introduce oxygen that will replicate that natural breathing of oxygen through a barrel. And so you introduce the oak, you introduce the oxygen, and then you increase the rate at which those natural reactions occur. So that's very, very common practice. I think, Ryan, as you said, you know, this is not new. This has been going on both in the wine, beer, spirits worlds for very, very, very long time. 
And now it's really starting to become something of more interest for us, especially because we are adapting more technologies for this industry. For example, the fiber infusion technology that I think you guys had your hands on. That is a partnership that we created with a guy named Matt Albrecht up in Maine. Shout out to Matt. He has a patented process that is extremely interesting. And basically what it does is it, it utilizes time, temperature, and pressure to season the oak in the same way that, let's say, a sherry cask would be seasoned. In that hot environment, those sherry casks go through a lot of expanding, a lot of contraction, and obviously soaking up the sherry. So basically what he's able to do is he's able to take our base oak wood and then introduce this process to it that uses time, temperature, and pressure to replicate what would happen at the top of a rickhouse or in the belly of a pirate ship. Whatever you can imagine, we can use input X amount of temperature, Y amount of pressure, and you know Z amount of time. And that will create a product that, and again, no, nothing artificial. If you wanted to, let's say that you own a customer owned a, a bourbon distillery and a winery, and they wanted to have a bourbon barrel Zinfandel product, right? They could send us their bourbon that they make. And so that, you know, that mash bill or whatever pieces of that puzzle that they really wanted to impact onto their wine side, we could then run that base bourbon through this process on our wood and you would get back seasoned barrel cubes. So it's essentially instead of buying bourbon barrels for the wine industry, which a lot of customers do out here, and there's a lot of variety. Some are wet, some are dry, some are leaking, some don't. You know, there's a lot of troubles with you know, repurposing old whiskey barrels for the wine industry or wine barrels, you know, for the whiskey industry. We send barrels across industry all the time. Instead of doing that, you can get a very consistent product. We can do the same thing with a Cabernet for your your whiskeys. And you can do a sherry cask aged bourbon that tastes consistent year to year in and out and you can scale it and it's replicable. So that's an extremely attractive option with the fiber infusion technology that we're really proud of is just kind of that next level of innovation of how do we season outside of just letting it sit in our yard in Carneros and go through the natural atmospheric pressure changes and natural watering from the rains and all of that. This is actually getting more intentional and not just choosing the place where we're doing that. We can increase the, the rate at which it happens so we can do it anytime we want. And, and the environmental factors that naturally occur in other parts of the world, we can do that too. So no artificial flavorings. You know, we can do things like a maple brown sugar bourbon and get very specific with the types of flavors that you're going to get out of that. You can do a rye profile. And if you liked, let's say, Mishter's rye, like you, you really like that, we could look up what we could find online or, or from that producer and what they're willing to tell us and replicate as many of those variables as we possibly can to get as close as that profile as we can. And then that can be your rye maple profile for whatever you want it. So the sky's the limit with the customization. We have probably a, about a 15 to 25 flavor menu that we have that you can choose to season the base interstave oak to meet specific sensory goals. All right. I saw Lee chomping to say something here, but I do want to interject one thing that I got out of there is that, Ryan, you know what we're missing after all that is the bourbon pirate ship. I mean, how has nobody done this yet? <laughs> I mean, you got what? Jefferson's Ocean. Watch out. Doing Trey Zoller's going to stuff on the seas. <laughs> They've tried almost everything. So that's a natural next step. Is Now, I was just going to say to give you some real life examples, I can't give you any names, of course, but on, on the more craft side, the very craft side, let's say you've made some new make and it's not going to be ready to go to market for four years, but you don't want to wait for four years. You can use this micro, this oxygen and 
oak and create a very tasty product in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of years. And so you can say, okay, I'm going to take my new make. I know I'm laying down X amount for four years when my bourbon is coming out, but I can come out with, say, an American whiskey that is going to be close to that flavor profile without being legally a bourbon, and I can start brand building four years earlier, and I can also start getting some cash influx that is often needed for craft distillers without doing what everyone does, which is like, well, I guess I'll have to make a gin and a vodka and sell those until I can get to my rise in bourbons. And the other thing I found is with several people is I've talked to folks and they're like, look, I've got this four-year-old bourbon and it's, it's just not quite there yet. Like it just needs a bump. It needs a little more flavor and a, a little more oak extraction. And this is the easiest way to solve that problem without dumping and rebarreling. So it's just sort of a more efficient, effective way to help somebody sort of fix whatever problem it is that they're having with their current inventory. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Lee. Yeah, and then on the fiber-infused, it's just an excellent way to finish, again, without having to rebarrel. You're getting a, a real nice finish. I know Ryan will talk about it in a pretty short period of time. And it's just, a again, a more efficient, effective, cost-saving way, more sustainable way to do it. And then I think finally, when you get away from bourbon and rye and et cetera, and you get into rum, tequila, Indian whiskey. You know, there are a lot of spirit categories that are aging in barrels, but there's no rule that is requiring them to do that. So there's no reason to not get away from from the barreling and, and be able to use book alternatives and, and get to market quicker and, and be more consistent than what they're getting with used barrels, say. Yeah, I think really what it boils down to is is getting the most out of that oak. We've been doing oak for 40 plus years, so we like to fancy ourselves oak experts, if you were. And, you know, we've got a lot of experience in toasting and seasoning and all the things that I've talked about. But at this point, we are really interested in the natural strain of, of reactions that occur in the, the typical barrel maturation process. And to that point, it's kind of led us down to, okay, there's there's two really great things. There's high extraction times or quick extraction times, which happens when you break down the barrel stave into you know a cube or a chip. But as you go down from size, you increase the astringency characteristics, the planky, the oaky characteristics that are typically you know negative. And the reason for that typically is that as you cut or mash or chip the oak stave, you're rupturing cell walls, you're releasing these compounds that creates the astringent profile and maybe, you know, a bad texture and things like that. So we've been looking for a solution where we can get those really quick extraction rates, but also not sacrifice that barrel-like elegance that we call in the wine world. And what we've found is a new solution that we're very excited about that breaks down oak through a very specific, very highly protected process. Again, from another industry, it's used a lot in the wheat industry because it doesn't use as much friction. It breaks oak down along the natural lignin, which leaves intact more cell walls and doesn't rupture as much. 
when you're breaking down wheat with friction tends to burn. And that's not a good thing for that industry. So we adapted that technology to the oak industry. And what we found is a very, very high extracted flavor profile with a very elegant sensory goal. So we're really, really excited about that. We're doing tons and tons of trials in the spirit space where we're getting, like Lee said, we're taking white dog, six month old whiskey, and we're making it taste blind to certain people that are calling it a two, four-year-old bourbon profile in the matter of six weeks. So obviously introducing microoxygenation through that process and temperature. Again, time, temperature, very, very important factors as everyone knows, but really just adapting the wood to increase surface area and allow for deep penetration quickly so that we can get a hold of those extractable molecules and then introduce oxygen at a level and a rate that feeds those reactions so that they can integrate and become part of that beverage. That's really what we're doing. So again, it's nothing artificial. This is just the natural reactions that occur in a barrel, but increasing the rate at which they occur. Yeah, that's what uh, I was most impressed about the product was Lee gave me the cubes. I put them in. I, w I forgot about them for two weeks. And like some of the barrels, like the maple and the brown sugar ones, they had gone like too fast, too far, you know, in just like two weeks. And like, I was like, man, I should have tasted these like at five days. And whereas I had a cab barrel, you know, that like Lee was talking about, what got me really excited was some two-year distillate and it tasted like a six-year. And I was like, it really just rounded out those grain notes that just kind of gave some balance and some like viscosity to it, some texture. And like you said, another thing that's really exciting about it, it's not like sonar technology or all these like gimmicky things. And I guess question for Lee, you know, you come from more traditional bourbon background from with Brown Foreman and all the Kentucky Owl and whatnot. How did you get past like, okay, this is a new, I guess, what was it about this technology that you said, I think, you know, a bourbon consumer or bourbon brands will be willing to take a chance on this? I got past it because I tasted it. I mean, that's, that's kind of it. You know, we, this micro oxygenation and, and micronized oak, what we were able to see in testing after six weeks, the American tasted two to three years old. The French tasted four to six years old. The French oak and almost had a cognac-y sort of flavor to it. And then all of the fiber infused, which is what you guys have had. I mean, it was the same thing. You just, it's getting to a better taste profile than you were at before. So, I mean, I'm all about just making something better. And I think the things we're talking about make something better and got me excited. And I'll tell you on another note, you know, my biggest fear coming into this was, man, I don't know if anybody, I don't even know if anybody's going to return one of my phone calls, you know, like this is <laughs> definitely a different thing. Right. And I would say I've only been with interstate for about four months, but I'd say of the maybe 75 people I've talked to different distilleries, big and small, about five of them had told me not to, you know, not to show up, not to send them samples. <laughs> but, you know, five out of 75, I think that's pretty good. And, and you know, they're always going to be purists, and I think that's fine. But what I was very pleasantly surprised that from the small craft guys all the way up to the biggest corporations in the industry, there's interest in different, in, and it may be, in, it's all in different parts. Somebody like this, somebody likes that, but I've been very impressed with the amount of willingness people have had to talk and to do some experimenting and to think about how it might fit in one of the programs that they have. 
Yeah. And I also want to make sure that we, we kind of get it straight. You know, you're talking about a, a multitude of different products and everything like that, that people, hopefully they're not getting confused of because obviously one of the big names that people had a very bad taste in their mouth at their beginning was like OZ Tyler. Everybody kind of knew exactly what they were doing and the bourbon world wanting nothing to do with them. Green River is not doing anything OZ Tyler anymore. They're doing their own thing. It's all natural bourbon. It's the regular thing. And so that's that's only like kind of like one thing that you all are doing over there. It's kind of like doing something to the new make and, and making it go a little bit different. I think for the basis of this conversation, there's a lot around the cubes and some of the other kind of proprietary finishing. And when it comes down to TTB laws, it's the same exact thing that you would have with Maker's Mark or anything else. It says basically Kentucky bourbon finished in xyz or kentucky bourbon finished with more staves or anything like that so it it technically breaks the rules of what is a bourbon because it is now considered a a whiskey specialty because you're you're adding new oak into it so i just want to make sure that we're a little bit clarifying that of making sure that listeners aren't confused of they're just taking all one-year-old whiskey and trying to push it on as a four-year-old bourbon like i think you all are doing a lot more than just that too yeah yeah that's right the TTB makes it a little difficult in this space, obviously, but with, you know, Angel's Envy and Maker's Mark, you know, there's lots of trailblazers that have been very forthcoming about how they're finishing and how they're, they're, they're extended aging or however they, they choose to, to say that and to be upfront with customers. That's what we're excited about. That's what we're looking for. And that's what we think is going to happen in the future. We're already starting to see it today. It's happened in the wine industry as these products are becoming more and more accepted in this industry. And the benefits, economical sustainability, however you want to look at it from a sensory standpoint, certainly are being realized. Hopefully there'll be more and more age statements and more comfort with coming out with something like that, maybe declassifying a really nice once bourbon into that that lower typically considered category, but with a very upfront age statement about how they finished it with maybe our products. We think that's going to be the future and, and we don't see any shame in that. We see a, a lot of excitement in that. We see creative distillers. We see, you know, frontline leading members of this industry going out there and saying, hey, wow, look what a sherry cask does. That's really cool. Let's fill some sherry casks. And then the next iteration, we can control how that sherry cask uh, oak is seasoned and tested, and we can start to turn those dials up and down as we want. Let's do that. So we see ourselves as just the next iteration in a progression line of innovative leaders. And what I really like about the product too, is that you're able to experiment on a smaller scale. For somebody like Ryan and I, if we want to come out with a new product and we're like, oh, let's go and finish this in a cab barrel, like, holy crap, what's it going to take for us to go buy a cab barrel, dump it, and pray and cross our fingers that everything's going to work out well? But now what we can do is we can create our own bespoke blend or take whatever distillate that we thought we were going to bottle, take a cab cube, put it in a 200 milliliter sample for two or three weeks, and now we know kind of what to expect on a larger scale. I think it it minimizes the risk on what you could do from a, an innovation perspective, especially if you're one of the smaller people and you just you can't go around, you can't buy thirty cognac barrels. You can't go and say, "All right, well, if I want to get my right toasting, I'm going to get." If you go and talk to Kelvin, you go and talk to these people. There's forty kinds of different toast levels and char levels that you could do, and these myriad of options. And so this gives you the ability to experiment on a much smaller scale without having to make that large upfront investment on the barrels as well. Exactly. And I like it. it's two weeks to three weeks, not three to six months or a year, you know, with other finishing. And two, I think the consumer's already kind of really on board with this because toasting is the whole new craze. And 
whether they want to admit it or not. A lot of these companies are using toasting to kind of mask or like elevate their younger distillate and give a premium price tag on their products. Mask or elevate there, Ryan? What are you trying oh, to go elevate. with? Elevate. <laughs> I say elevate. Mask and elevate. Not mask, but... Uh, no, it's uh, funny. We say that all the time in the wine industry and, and behind closed doors, the word mask, and we have other dirty words too. <laughs> Not mask, elevate. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> Enhance. Reach its fullest potential. There I like is. that. I like that one. Yeah. That's going on some marketing material. Okay. <laughs> exactly. But they've already, you know, they've already said that we're on board with this and we actually love it. Like if you throw toasted on something, it sells out like, like that instantly, you know, it's, uh, and I, I'm excited for all the reasons Kenny said, but it's just fun as someone who's excited about blending whiskeys and blending different flavors. It's uh, another tool that, we can use to kind of differentiate ourselves. And like Lee said earlier, you know, it tasted good. That's why I got on board. And that's what got me excited about this because it tasted good. And it's like, that's what I'm all about is putting something good in the bottle that we can enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You said it and, and both of you hit on it. You know, this is so accessible for a customer out there with a few barrels or a few hundred barrels and an idea for a new brand. We have sample packs that will send you, you know, six cubes, and you could set up three or four different trials, like you said, a 200 milliliter sample on the bench top, and you can try it at you know four grams per liter, eight grams per liter, and 12 grams per liter. And then you can have three different flavors on top of that and do a set of tastings in two weeks where you could, you know, like you said, Ryan, would have taken you months or years to, to do at a large format scale production trial. And I like too that it's repeatable. You all can dial in the consistency of the wood as which you don't get, like, as you talked about with other stay finishing or cask finishing, you know, every barrel is completely dinner. Some will be wet, some will be dry, some get recharged or whatever they use, or <laughs> they pour more port in them or pour some, you know, so it's all completely different. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, the, the whole fiber infusion technology process came about because Mr. Albrecht was selling used barrels. That's kind of his core market. That's what he does for a living. And he sold, I think, some tequila barrels to a brewery. And they made this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful beer. I think he got like two or three barrels from the from the tequila producer. And it won some double golds and got some a lot of attention and heat and started to take off. And of course, the distributor went to the brewery and said, okay, I need tons more of this for these three markets. We want to open up this state and all of this great news that you're just dying to hear as a, you know, emerging brewery. And of course that brewery went back to Matt and said, Hey, we need, you know, a hundred more of those tequila barrels. And Matt said, I might get two next year. <laughs> so that's, you know, sourcing those barrels after creating such beautiful bespoke products is a real hardship especially for brands that are competing with you know the big boys on the block and they have to come out with a replicable product to to go up against you know established brands that are national or international so that kind of other other side of the uh, the coin you know where you're an emerging distillery and and you want to make sure that what you're doing now works for your tasting room today and for hopefully your distribution partners tomorrow. And that's something that we pride ourselves on. We've helped a lot of our customers in the wine world on that and adapting our understanding and, and history into the spirits world seems to be a natural fit so far. And we're really excited to work with our customers in that way too. Well, cool. I mean, we're excited to watch you all grow and see what's going to happen here. I think this is probably a good way to kind of wrap it up. So give people an idea if they want to learn more about Interstave they're saying, this is fun. I want to just learn more about it. Maybe it's a gimmick. How can I find out it's not a gimmick? So where would you send people to go and learn more? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Lee's our head in the in the spirits world. You know, he lives in Kentucky. So if you're if you're a young distiller or or someone interested in how everything works and, and what this process is, definitely reach out to Lee. We can send you sample packets. You know, we send those out for free to customers. We're here to help. We'll give you a consultation on on you know how we suggest you perform your benchtop trial. That's very important. A lot of people, Ryan, like you mentioned, they'll put in eight cubes and wait three weeks and then go, oh, this doesn't taste good. This is too oaky. And it's because they over-extracted or under-extracted if they tasted. I had a guy taste in less than an hour and he was not blown away by the flavor profile. So definitely ask questions. We're here to help and answer. And, you know, we can send you, you know, kind of our quote unquote menu, which will have all of our, our prescribed fiber infusion flavor profiles. So you can choose which way you want the oak seasoned and we can send you sample packets and help you get those benchtop trials set up. So that's, that's definitely kind of the tip of the spear as far as understanding what you like about what we have to offer. Hold on. Gary's going to kill Cody because his answer was supposed to be Go to our website. Yeah. <laughs> you can check everything out there. Just got it's a totally new website. It's got all of our contact info and it even has a nice picture of each of us on there. So you can kind of see who you're gonna have to deal with. Yeah, we update that all the time. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate you saving me a skin and and also our Instagram. We're very active on Instagram. We like to put updates from the front lines. I'm in South America, I'm in Europe. I'm working with distilleries all over the world. So, you know, we like to share information that we have and things, lessons learned the hard way usually. So you can keep up with what the latest lesson that we've learned via Instagram and and our website. We'll be introducing a blog about kind of our experience in the spirits and wine industries. And and hopefully you all can can learn about that and and enjoy our failure (laughs) and success. Just give people an idea of like what the menu looks like. So if, if they come to you and say, hey, what do you have? Like, give an idea. What, what's your Big Mac? Yeah, for sure. So we have all basic spirit vector profiles. So, you know, tequila, rum, bourbon, hickory smoked bourbon, maple bourbon, brown sugar bourbon, vanilla bourbon. Really, most of those kind of common furfural and vanillin driven kind of flavor profiles caramel, mocha, things like that we can we can do. Obviously, for the spirits industry, we have Cabernet Chardonnay, Pinot, Sherry Cask, Rum Barrel. That's a, been a nice one, kind of a spiced rum profile. People are playing around with that a lot. That's really, really cool. We have a rye tequila profile barrel, which is really, really interesting. And then, of course, we can customize for certain customers that are serious and, and excited about it. So for one distillery, you know, we, we help them out with a honey option and you know they wanted the honey to be from their area so anything's possible for the right customer but it would be a great place to start with one of our menu items get a sense and a feel for the product and then talk with lee and i and and we'll help you build a program based on your your goals really cool yeah make sure you follow them check it out check out our instagram too i know ryan's been playing with some of their their products so you can go and see exactly what it looks like so make sure you go and do that as well But if you like the show, make sure you share with a friend. That's the best way. Share your whiskey with a friend. Share the podcast with a friend. Go ahead and rate it, but also leave us any kind of review as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. Mm